You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. We do have our sermon notes available in our Google Drive folder if you would like to use those for your own note-taking or to simply follow along with the, the notes that will appear on the screen this morning. Genesis chapter 42 is where we'll be today. We've already um, read through and discussed um, some aspects of it in our discussion groups this morning. Um, You'll remember last or two weeks ago we were talking from Genesis chapter 41 where um, ultimately Joseph sees himself rise to power, that um, God gives grace through all the trials that he's experienced, through all the difficulties and the um, injustice from a man's perspective towards him. Uh, all those things are finally uh, kind of shown to to be uh, God's plans for his life as God's working and, and moving in his life. Um, and so he rises to power uh, in Egypt. And um, this is due to the, uh, the plans of God being communicated to Pharaoh in a way that Pharaoh doesn't understand them. Um, and you'll remember that He's able to pull Joseph up and get an interpretation. We talked about the fact that as unbelievers, um, they're unaware of the future, um, that God gives this dream, God communicates, and, and the Pharaoh doesn't know what's going on, um, that there's a future for unbelievers as well today. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends that are, that are lost, there's a future awaiting them as well um, that they need to be prepared for, and we are the ones that need to illuminate them to that future. And so in the same way Joseph comes on the scene and helps Pharaoh understand God's plan, we too have a responsibility to do that. Um, And we should boldly proclaim that in the same way that Joseph does. Um, And then we talked about how the plans of God demand a response when understood, that that Joseph basically tells him what's going to happen and then gives him advice about how to handle that. Um, And so we talked about that a little bit, and then we talked about just the the aspect of how... um, Joseph demonstrates a, a healthy and a fruitful uh, forgetfulness in the way that um, he names his children and names them in such a way where it demonstrates that he's been believing all along that God was in control of his circumstances and his events, and he can put his trust in the future of his family um, based on how he's communicating that. And then at the end of chapter 41, verse 56, it says, so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Today we're talking about a fear of God that removes all fear. Our summary sentence for today, believers are called to fear the Lord in obedience in order to avoid the fear of discipline and the fear of an uncertain future. Believers are called to fear the Lord in obedience in order to avoid the fear of discipline and the fear of an uncertain future. For our kids, when we fear God, we no longer have to be afraid of God. When we fear God, we no longer have to be afraid of God. We're going to see today in in chapter 42, and I told you why I believe this chapter needs to be set aside versus just combining it with the next couple of chapters, that um, there's different characters in this chapter that demonstrate different levels of fear. We're going to see the, the fear of Joseph and how he communicates the fear of the Lord before his brothers and how the fear of God is dictating his movements and his reactions and, and how he interacts with them and how he plans to interact with them in the future. We're going to see the brothers and the fear surrounding them as they look to their past and understand their guilt as their consciences are, 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 are awakened by the events and the conversations with Joseph, we see they, they demonstrate a level of fear. What is God doing to me in light of what I've done in the past? And then we're going to see um, Jacob's fear that, that grips him and, and incapacitates him, basically, that he's so fearful of what could happen that it essentially renders him unable to move forward with any kind of joy. Um, And so we're going to see those three different types of fear, appropriateness to them, inappropriateness to them, um, and then ultimately bring it all back to this idea that if we fear the Lord in obedience, it protects us and keeps us from having to fear discipline and having to fear an uncertain future. And for our kids, we're we're wanting you to understand, and, and we'll do this today, but we'll do this also through our family worship questions, 
understanding that when we fear God, we no longer have to be afraid. All right, some introductory notes here. The famine um, that's come upon the land is severe as the Lord had promised. You'll remember in the dreams of chapter 41, Joseph said it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad in such a way that if we don't handle this appropriately, we're going to forget about the seven good years. And it has certainly become a serious famine that's over all the earth, and it's leading every nation to come to Egypt for help. And we see that in Genesis chapter 42, that this also affects the the nation of Israel, the small nation of Israel, the family of Israel that's becoming that nation. It says, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Egypt's the only source of provision at this time. It it, it shows us and reminds us that God uses the famine to direct his people which reminds us that God can use anything to guide us into his will. There's, there's nothing good about a famine, right? There's nothing pleasurable about a famine. And yet what we've been talking about over the past month or so is that God's going to use this famine to drive his people to Egypt for good purposes, right? This isn't discipline. The famine isn't here because people have done anything wrong necessarily. It's intentional by God to drive his people to Egypt. To, to put them in a place where they can grow and thrive and become that great nation that Egypt looks at as a threat, that they've been strengthened in such a way, they haven't been absorbed into the, the land of Canaan, they've become their own unique set of people, and, and, and God is using the famine to drive them to that purpose. And it's a reminder to us that the trials that are in our life that are not pleasurable, that are not desirable, that are not good in and of themselves, God can use anything to drive us to his will. And he uses a famine in this case where people are starving, most likely people are dying, and it drives his people to the place that God wants them to be. We've talked about the fact that there's two different perspectives about this famine and the circumstances surrounding Joseph's movement to Egypt. One, Jacob's perspective in this chapter, is that everything has come against him. Remember uh, in reading that when Jacob uh, has his, his sons return to him, um, it says in verse 36, Jacob their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Jacob's perspective is basically, my life's falling apart. Like nothing's going my way. God is, God is doing something in such a way where everything feels like it is just falling apart in my life. But from God's perspective and the way we've seen these events and how they correlate and because we have the benefit of kind of knowing the future, God's perspective is that everything's finally set up now. Like everything is set up the way that it's supposed to be set up for this people to become a great nation. Um, So Jacob's perspective, his limited view, his tunnel vision basically is that, wow, everything's just falling apart. Nothing's going right. And God's perspective is everything's going right. Everything's going exactly as I've planned for it to go. Um, What's also clear, I think, in this chapter is that the family, Jacob's family, is going to be unable to find salvation or or, uh, not salvation in a spiritual sense, but from a physical sense, Joseph is not going to allow his family to be saved from the famine unless reconciliation occurs. He's not going to let the family relationship continue until this happens. What we get from this is that Joseph is not okay with the family moving forward and not reconciling themselves. I mean, this is a reminder to us. We've talked previously how important reconciliation is. Joseph could have easily revealed himself right off the bat and said, hey, it's me, it's your brother, bring everybody down and skipped all the field trips that take place to Egypt. He could, have, he could have just skipped all that and said, go home, get your family, bring them here, all the food's on me, no worries. And they would have never really had to talk about the fact that he had been thrown into slavery by his brothers. They may have never really realized that they had done anything wrong. It never would have forced the hand of reconciliation. But Joseph, as we're gonna see over the next couple of weeks, really um, carefully 
orchestrates the events, obviously being led by God and God's in control of all of it, but, but Joseph in his wisdom orchestrates these events to where the family can be reconciled and can move forward in Egypt together. Um, I think it's also a reminder to us in this chapter, God often works good in the midst of what looks like harm. God works good in the midst of what looks like harm. Joseph's doing the same thing here. We see what looks like Joseph doing harm to his brothers, but ultimately it's for good purposes. It brings about conviction in their hearts. It brings about reconciliation. And so in the same way God oftentimes uses difficulties in our life for good purposes, Joseph kind of models that and shows an example of how that works as he does something similar. He uses difficult difficult things, difficult responses to his brothers, and ultimately it's for good purposes. Um, And we'll see how that kind of unfolds as well. All right, if you're taking notes with us, number one, as we look at the different fears that are expressed in this chapter, what we see first is a fear that motivates. A fear that motivates. We should tremble at the goodness of God who works for us rather than against us. A fear that motivates. We should tremble at the goodness of God who works for us rather than against us. For our kids, we should run to God rather than running away from him. We should run to God rather than running away from him. Back at the beginning of chapter 42, Joseph's brothers make their way to Egypt. It says, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph goes on to accuse them of being spies. Um, he says, you, you've come to, to scout us out. You've come to see our weaknesses. You've come to attack us. Verse 10, they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Verse 12, he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. So he, he, he won't let them off. He says, that it rec- he says he recognizes them in verse 7, but he makes himself uh, like a stranger to them, and he speaks roughly to them, and he's speaking through a translator to them. So he's speaking Egyptian language. He's clean-shaven. Remember, he had to be clean-shaven before he was brought to the Pharaoh. So he doesn't look like Joseph, and he's doing this intentionally. He's withholding his identity from them. It says in verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested. Whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So initially, he basically says, you're going you're gonna to all be put in prison and one of you is going to go back to get Benjamin to prove that your story is accurate. But in verse 18, it says, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. So he changes it, changes the arrangement and says, I'm going to keep one of you. I'm going to send the rest of you back home. Get your brother, bring him back. If you do this, you'll live. If you do this, the one that I've held back, Simeon, he will live. So he puts Simeon in jail. He's going to keep Simeon there, but basically communicates to them, if you, if you follow through with this, I'm going, to, I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. And I love how he ties his actions to his fear of God. And the language that he uses would have, would have indicated to them that there's a similar fear to the God of Israel. Now, he doesn't use the covenant name Yahweh, but there's enough indication here where he's at least presenting himself as a friendly face to them. Hey, I fear your God. If he had revealed himself as fearing Yahweh, that covenant name, I think it would have tipped, tipped his hand and shown him to be Joseph. Um, but he's indicating to them, hey, you can trust me. You can trust that, that we fear the same God. If you'll do this, then I'll respond accordingly um, and do what's right to you. We tremble at the goodness of God. Joseph's saying, I'm led by a a healthy fear of God. And I want to talk about this for just a minute, and we're going to listen to something here in a few minutes uh, where John Piper illustrates something similar. But if you, I know a lot of us, um, we want to, we, we're, we're able to reflect upon God's goodness and his greatness when we're in creation. 
Um, it may be at, the, at a sunrise or a sunset, and we can see the beauty of God and the majesty of God, or maybe we're outside one night and we look up and we see the stars and we can see his handiwork and we, and we can attest to the goodness of God and his greatness. There's something unique, though, about being in the presence of power that's dangerous, but you feel protected from it, right? So it's one thing to enjoy God's good creation that, that's pleasurable and it's safe and it's nice and it's pretty, right? So we can, we can see pretty paintings, we can see flowers, we can see his creation and, 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 and see an awe for God there. But there's something about being in the presence of a dangerous power and being protected from that power that gives another unique perspective. Um, an example, um, we were down at the cabin one year. I can't remember if it was a church thing or if we were just down with Chris, some of the guys from church, but we were, we were hanging out in the cabin and Adam Long had kind of disappeared and, and we're all kind of laying around. We've eaten breakfast and we're kind of just waiting until it's time to hunt. And all of a sudden Adam Long comes up and he's got like this clear Tupperware bucket. And he says, you guys aren't gonna believe what I found down there. And he's got this giant snake in this, this bucket and it's a poisonous snake, right? And so he's, he sets it on the table and he's like, check this out. And this snake is angry at Adam Long and he is angry about the fact that he's in this bucket. And so we all get around and I mean, it's, like, it's a water moccasin um, that he had caught. I mean, this snake, it, it coils up and it is striking at the bucket. And I mean, there is venom being splashed all over this Tupperware bucket. And there was something like where you're just like, ah, that's, that's some dangerous power there, but I feel protected. And so we could all kind of enjoy this, this awe sense of power that we're protected from. Another example, we were uh, shark fishing, um, I guess this was two years ago, maybe, two years ago, um, and we're, we're, we're shark fishing and a storm blows in, um, and, it, and it's nasty and it's dangerous and there's lightning and thunder and rain, but we're having such a good time shark fishing. Um, and so we just, we're like, let's just keep staying out here. Let's just keep staying out here. And, and at one point, I mean, the, the clouds and the sky is just so dark. And, and there's, there's, there's lightning bolts around us. And, and we're standing out there with poles in our hands. And we're fishing. And, and all I could do is look at Ben and say, this is awesome. Um, because there's, to me, there's something unique about being in the presence of an awesome power. And and it's, it's better when you're, you're up on, on land and away from the shore and, and you're not holding a, a metal rod or whatnot. But there's something, I love being at the beach and having a storm blow in and being on like the balcony of a condo and being able to just watch the, the power of God. And it does cause you to tremble a little bit. You, you kind of sense the, the danger that exists there, um, but you, you feel protected in it as well. Um, and, and, and that's what I think we see when we have a healthy fear of God. We, we see the fact that, that God is, is potentially a dangerous God, um, that, that God is a wrathful God, and that in all of his, his glory and his beauty, there's a level of danger um, that exists with God. Um, and thanks be to God that Christ has come to spare us from that danger. Um, but, but I think that you get that picture when you're at the foot of Mount Sinai, when you read in the Old Testament and you see God's glory being demonstrated on that mountain and there's, there's clouds and there's thunder and there's lightning and, um, and it was meant to draw out a sense of worship from the children of Israel as they see that their God is a real God, that they're coming from Egypt where they've been uh, kind of uh, observing the Egyptians worshiping false gods. And, and now they've come to really identify with their God, uh, the God of Israel. And that's how God reveals himself on this mountain um, with, this, with this dangerous picture of, of, of thunder and rumblings. And um, there's something special about being in the presence of that type of power and knowing that it's working for you rather than against you, um, that it's a good power and that it's a power that's designed for our good. And um, we're gonna talk about that more here in just a few minutes. But number one, the way that we see this fear, this type of fear that Joseph has motivating him, number one, it works towards reconciliation in his life in that he tests his brothers. So as he identifies his brothers and, and sees um, that they've come and he hasn't seen them in over a decade and um, you know, he's trying to work through, how do I respond? 
And, and as we read through the next chapters, we see that there's time and time again where he wants to show himself to his brothers. He wants to, to kind of skip to the, the hugging and the embracing and the fellowship. But again, he works very meticulously to bring about the reconciliation that is needed. Um, proper reconciliation requires that the offending party be changed. And I think what we see here, Joseph wanting to know, are these the same brothers that I had 13 years ago? Are these the same brothers that hated me, that loved themselves, that loved money, um, that were jealous and, and envious and vengeful? Are these the same brothers? Um, because we can't be reconciled if their attitude and their hearts are the same. We see the series of tests will draw out their current character. Um, and Joseph wants to know, do they love each other? Um, do they love Simeon enough to come back and get Simeon out of jail? Or are they willing to abandon Simeon the way they were willing to abandon him in a pit and then ultimately abandon him to a group of slave traders? Do they love Benjamin enough to spare him? Um, have they transferred their, their uh, anger and their uh, vengefulness towards Benjamin now as the favored son? Or will they protect him? Because Benjamin's the key to everything. If Benjamin doesn't survive the trip to Egypt, if they can't convince their dad to hand over Benjamin, no more food for the family. So they're going to be tested as to whether or not they love and care for Benjamin. Um, he also tests them to see if money's still their focus. He, he dumps all their money back in their, their sacks of grain, right? They, they didn't pay anything uh, for the stuff they came to get from Egypt. And remember, they were enticed by the money that they could make off of Joseph when they sold him into slavery. And so Joseph's testing them to see if they're the same people. Uh, he puts them in a position where they're going to have to show favoritism towards Benjamin to save themselves. There's this whole discussion here in this chapter about whether or not they're spies, you know, and they attest to never have, uh, they've never been spies. They're certainly not currently spies. But if you'll remember several chapters back, they've done this type of thing before at Shechem. Remember, they, they, they identified the Shechemites and they kind of uh, viewed them and viewed their weaknesses. And you'll remember they enticed them into this treaty to make things right with uh, how they had abused their sister. And then they killed them all, right? And so while Joseph is maybe exaggerating this and saying, hey, are you spies? In the back of his mind, he's got to remember, you guys wiped out a whole city before, right? Like you came in, you got what you wanted and you killed a bunch of people for it. He says, I've got to make sure that you're not going to try to do that again here in Egypt. And so um, it's not unreasonable for him to ask these type of questions and to potentially view them with a raised eyebrow. Will his brothers try to harm him again? Um, will they try to protect their secret? You know, he could have easily revealed himself right here, and they could have easily schemed to try to do something to Joseph to make sure that their secret stays hidden. Because to see Joseph now with his new identity would mean that dad's going to have to find out about this. And for Joseph, he wants to know, are we ready to move past this? Are we ready to experience forgiveness and reconciliation? Um, or are you still the same brothers? Number two, Joseph guards against vengeance by giving. Joseph guards against vengeance by giving. We, we discussed earlier today as to whether this is a good thing uh, or a bad thing for him to interact with his brothers this way. I think there's enough evidence in the text to show us that this is not Joseph doing this out of spite or anger towards his brothers. Some reasons I would say that. First of all, he releases all of the brothers except Simeon after he said he was going to keep them all in prison except one. Um, he, he lets them all go back home except for one. Um, you know, he wants to make sure that they're going to come back. Um, again, he's testing them to see if they love each other the way that they didn't love him. But he releases all the brothers except Simeon. This is good because it allows them, obviously, to carry more grain back home to their families. This is, this is Joseph and his compassion for his ancestors. He says, I want to make sure that, that my family is taken care of. I want to make sure that uh, my, my dad and his kids are taken care of, so I'm going to send as many of them back as possible. Um, he provides sufficient grain for themselves and their families. He returns their money to them and does not profit over the situation. Um, and he also makes sure they have no excuse not to come back. Because remember, he says... You're going to go home, you're going to get your brother, and you, when you need to come back and buy grain, then, then that's when we'll, we'll, we'll settle this. He doesn't even want them to get home and say, hey, we don't even have money to buy grain anymore. Let's don't go back to Egypt. Let's just cut ties with Simeon. He removes all excuses for them to not come back to Egypt. Um, he gives himself over to proper emotion by weeping over seeing them again. Um, 
He's certainly not demonstrating a vengeful attitude here. I think he's meticulously making sure that reconciliation can really happen. Um, And he sets them up for success by sending them home with their money, sends all of them home except Simeon, and the desire is for them to come back and show their character to them. The implication from this section for us, a proper fear of God leads us to seek refuge in him as we seek to trust his goodness and obey his commands. A proper fear of God leads us to seek refuge in him as we seek to trust his goodness and obey his commands. Joseph's basis for treating his brothers right is tied to his fear of God. And that's what he says. He says, I'm gonna do right to you. I'm gonna do right to you because I fear God. Basically, he's saying, I'm a just man. I'm an honorable man. I'm a man who does right because I fear God. Um, And so he's allowing his fear of God to dictate his actions. Psalm chapter 31, verse 19. And then I'm gonna get you guys to read some passages. So if you've got your Bibles handy and you wanna read, um, then I'm gonna give you a chance to volunteer here in just a second. Psalm chapter 31, verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Let me read that to you again. How abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. It's, this, it's, this, it's the attitude that we see in Rahab. Remember Rahab talks about the, the awesome power of the God of Israel? She says, your God is it. Your God is the one true God. Your God is going to give you the promised land. And she says, I wanna run to your God. I I wanna be saved by your God. I see the awesome power of the storm rolling in. I see the awesome power of the thunder and the lightning coming in and I wanna run to it rather than running away from it. I wanna be saved by it. I wanna be saved by that awesome power that I see. I wanna be saved by that power. Um, Psalm 31, 19, that, that God stores up an abundant of goodness for those that fear God. All right, I've got several passages, so if you want to read, um, let me know. I need somebody to read Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4, okay? Uh, Psalm 112, verse 1. Who would like to? Okay, Maggie. Um, Psalm 147, 7 through 11. Jordan? Uh, Proverbs 14, 26 through 27. David? Proverbs nineteen twenty three, right Dallas and Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. Last one, Anna. All right, so Deuteronomy thirteen four. All right, this is a reminder to the children of Israel that as they go into the land, that they have been tasked to fear God and to obey Him. And, and a lot of times, when you see fearing God in Scripture, it's tied to an obedience for Him that the fear of God dictates how we act. Uh, Psalm 112, verse one. All right, the blessings that come from fearing God. Psalm 147, seven through 11. All right, the Lord takes pleasure when we fear him and when we find our hope in him. Proverbs 14, 26 through 27. All right, there's, there's a confidence that comes from fearing God. All right, so we're not, we're not afraid of him. We're not fearful of him. It's not the, the mythology of the Greeks where they're afraid of those gods and they want to, to pacify those gods, but there's this, this awe and respect for God and his power and it, it leads to obedience and it leads to confidence and trust and hope. Uh, Proverbs 19, 23. All right, when we, when we fear God, we don't have anything else to fear, right? We're protected from harm. It talks about us being satisfied uh, in our fear of God. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. All right, there's again that idea that um, fearing God is tied to um, obedience. I wanna listen to this uh, Ask Pastor John um, rather than trying to um, explain what he has to say. I think it's just helpful to listen to what he has to say about this. 
Eric writes in to ask of this. Pastor John, can you please explain the fear of God? I have heard different definitions of what this means to fear God as a believer. I would say this is a very important topic. It's not marginal. Um, It is all over the Bible. The fear of the Lord is a pervasive and important uh, topic. And I think it's needed today because we're so quick, I think, to solve the problem of God's fearsomeness with the gospel that we may not give people a chance to really let it sink in how deeply sinful they are or how fearful God really is. Um, the Old Testament, of course, everybody would think of the Old Testament, I suppose, as strewn with um, commands to fear the Lord and warnings of the terrible things that will come if we don't and the blessings that come if we do. Uh, Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen: blessed is the one who fears the Lord, who, who does not harden his heart. So fearing God is contrasted with a, a hard unperceptive heart. Or Isaiah 66, 2, um, this is the one to whom I will look. He, look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So again, fearing is corresponding with humility and, and lowliness and sensitivity of heart. Uh, the sheer majesty of God, as well as the holiness and justice and power and wrath of God, um, cannot be approached in a cavalier spirit. It would be insane to think we can just stroll up to the creator of the universe and have a cavalier spirit. We're blind if we think we can do that without trembling. Now, is, is that just for the Old Testament? What does the New Testament say? Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for... God is the one who's at work in you. This is really interesting. You should fear and tremble because God is working to keep you. (laughs) And I think it means the sheer, awesome presence of God in our lives working for us, not against us, for us should produce trembling. That's amazing. So, so the New Testament treats the fear of God as a, a motive for not turning away from him. We, we, should, we should fear uh, in the sense that we seek um, refuge from God, away from God's terrible wrath. God's grace in Christ is the refuge from God's wrath outside Christ. There's, there's terror outside of Christ, and there's a different kind of trembling inside of Christ. So, for example, Hebrews 12, uh, 25, See that you don't refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that's security, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship in reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. In other words, the same thing is there that uh, we're safe. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, but our God is a consuming fire. You don't come near him without reverence and awe. So um, Romans 11 19 to 21 uh, shows how not only do you experience the fear of God as a right way of worshiping him in reverence and awe, but you experience the fear of God as an incentive not to run away from him. So it says in Romans 11, 19, when you, when you, you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. In other words, Jews were rejected so that I, a Gentile, could be grafted into Abrahamic covenant. That's true. Verse 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. 
So he's commanding believers who are standing fast in faith to fear. Fear what? Fear the prospect of becoming proud and arrogant and self-sufficient and drifting away from the living God in a kind of hard-heartedness. So fear functions as a preservative. We don't want to run away from God. Don't be presumptuous. So there's that aspect of, of fearing God. Um, we, we want to be rid of some aspects of fearing God, and we don't want to be rid of some aspects of fearing God. So First John describes the time we want to be done with. First John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we... God doesn't want us to cower like slaves in the household where the children should be enjoying sweet peace in their father's care. So perfect love, if we could get to the point of perfect love, we wouldn't, we wouldn't fear God's uh, rejection of us. We would be really content in his acceptance. So we can be done. We should be done with a cowering fear that we might not be saved and enjoy our our care and our security in his in his house. But there but the other aspect of fear um is what we should keep and enjoy. Yes, enjoy. Nehemiah one eleven. O Lord let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Delight to fear your name. Delight to fear your name. <laughs> so there is a kind of fear that is not repulsive. It's, it doesn't drive us away. It draws us in. Or here's Isaiah 11, 2 about the, the Lord Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is, is upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus enjoyed fearing God. Now here, here are two pictures and I'll close. I went to visit a man named Dick Teagan with Karsten when he was six. He had a dog at the door when we opened the door, and he looked Karsten eyeball to eyeball. It was a giant dog. And I sent Karsten back to the car to grab something that we'd forgotten, and the dog went loping up behind this six-year-old at his very height with a little low growl, and Karsten was terrified. And Dick leaned out the door and shouted to Karsten, my six-year-old, um, Karsten, may maybe you better not run. He doesn't like it when people run away from him. And I thought, that's going in the sermon this Sunday. <laughs> just just walk beside him. You can put your hand around his neck, you know. God is horrifically dangerous to run away from. And we should be terrified to run away from God. But if we will stay with him, his growl is a growl of our protection, not our destruction. And we can put our arm around his big Aslan-like neck, I guess, to change the, to change the imagery. Or here's one last image, and I love this one because I love, I love the picture of a big, holy, sovereign, majestic God. So I'm picturing myself climbing in the mountains, say the, the Himalayas, and these massive rock faces, and I see a storm coming. It's going to be a massive storm, and I feel unbelievably vulnerable on these mountain precipices. And so I am desperately looking for a little covert in the rock where I won't be blown off the side of the cliff to destruction. And I find a hole in the side of the mountain, and I slip in quickly, and suddenly the holiness and justice and power and wrath and judgment of God breaks over me like a hurricane. But I know I am totally safe, which means all that horrible danger is trans. Uh, posed into the music of majesty, and I can enjoy it rather than fearing it. And I think that's what the cross is. Jesus died for us to provide a place where we could enjoy the majesty of God with a kind of fear and trembling and reverence and awe, but not a cowering fear.
Mm, what a picture. Thank you, Pastor John. All right. And um, for more on fear. I love that picture that he has of how um, the fear that we're supposed to have is a fear that uh, guards us from running away from him, um, that we run to God. We want to be protected by him. We see him as the source of goodness, the source of hope. Um, and to, to, to leave him um, and to know the consequences of leaving him and what that would look like for the rest of our life, that fear keeps us next to him. Um, and I think that's the fear that Joseph has, and I think that's what he's describing to his brothers, that, hey, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the right type of, of, of man. He, they don't know his brother. I'm going to be the right type of man towards you because I fear God. There's two other fears that I want to cover real quick, though, that, that are clear in this passage. First is a fear that rehabilitates, a fear that rehabilitates. God works to awaken our conscience in order to restore us to proper spiritual health. God works to awaken our conscience in order to restore us to proper spiritual health. For kids, when we disobey God, we should expect him to discipline us. It says that after Joseph's kind of communicated to his brothers the deal, um, it says in verse 21, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Reuben argues for the fact that um, he tried to get them to listen to him and they would not. Um, <clears throat> says that um, Joseph sees their, their conversation. He's hearing their conversation. He's brought to tears over the, the conviction that he sees in this conversation. Um, he ends up taking Simeon fills their bags with, um, with their money. Uh, but we begin to see their consciences awakened as they start to assess their circumstances in light of what they have previously done. So number one, their consciences are pricked as their memories are jogged. And I think their memories are jogged because of the fact they're in Egypt, which is probably why at the beginning of the chapter when Jacob says, why do you guys just keep looking at, you, looking at each other when I talk about Egypt? Like you guys aren't doing anything. Like, we need food. I keep telling you that food is in Egypt, and you guys just keep looking at each other. Probably because of the conviction that's starting to set in that if we get down to Egypt, that's where we sent our brother. Like, we sent Joseph down there. Um, they start having these conversations probably in prison, too. You know, we're in prison in Egypt. This is probably where Joseph ended up. Um, their consciences are pricked as their memories are jogged. Through conversations with Joseph, they begin to realize their guilt from past actions. Uh, conviction and guilt are an act of grace of God to bring us to repentance and forgiveness. Conviction and guilt are acts of grace by God to bring us to repentance and forgiveness. This is God working for the other 10 brothers. He's using these circumstances to bring them to repentance. And what I put in my notes that I think is unique here, because God is such a gracious God, it requires that we really think into the past when we're in trials as to whether or not it's a disciplinary type situation, right? Um, they could have easily looked around and said, why is God doing this? Like there's nothing in our immediate present that we've done that would warrant God doing this in our life. Um, but God has been so gracious to them over the past 13 years that they really have to dig deep and say, okay, this is probably connected to the fact that we never got things right with what we did with Joseph. I mean, this is a reminder to us that as God's working in our life, he does bring discipline into our life at times. And it may require that we really sit down and think and, and think back on things that need to be confessed, um, that there's a time of grace and, and God wants to bring us to repentance and, and maybe he doesn't bring judgment or discipline upon us right away. Um, this is something that happened 13 years ago and God's now allowing it to surface so that it can be dealt with properly. And Joseph sets the stage here for a tearful reunion uh, the guilt forces them to accept responsibility. Um, the fear that they, they have now about this judgment causes them to see what they deserve. They understand. They're, they're not arguing against this, right? They're not trying to justify their actions. They see what's happening and they realize, hey, we deserve this. They deserve this. Number two, their spirits are fearful as they see potential judgment looming. Their spirits are fearful as they see potential judgment looming. Proverbs 3.12 um, and Hebrews um, chapter 12 talk about the discipline that God gives us as a father, that it's appropriate, that it's right, that God interacts with us like a father interacts with his son. Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks about fearing the one who ultimately could, could put our souls in hell, um, that there's proper judgment, there's proper discipline that God administers towards sin. 
For us as believers, we fall under that discipline category where we don't obviously fear God's wrath and eternal punishment, but we do uh, seek to be obedient to him, realizing that if we're not, he's going to bring correction into our life. And these brothers, their, their spirits are stirred. They're fearful over potential judgment that's looming. They realize this is being brought on us because of what we did to our brother. They correctly identify God working against them as he takes them through this temporary discipline. They don't dispute whether they deserve it or not. They embrace their guilt action. Um, They acknowledge God is working. They just don't understand what he is doing or will do. They fear what he may do. Um, This goes back to what we discussed several, or a couple of months ago, from 1 Peter chapter 3. They are suffering for doing evil rather than for doing good. Remember we said the difference. We suffer for two different reasons, for good or for evil. When we're suffering for doing good, we can trust that God has some bigger picture at play for us. When we suffer for doing evil, we have to admit that we brought this upon ourselves. Now, God will still use it for good, but it's something that could have potentially been avoided. Here, they're suffering for doing evil, and they recognize it, and they don't argue against it. The implication for us is that we should quickly respond when convicted of sin in our life, so that God is not required to help us deal with unresolved sin. We should quickly respond when convicted of sin in our life so that God is not required to help us deal with unresolved sin. The fear of of discipline ought to lead us to regular repentance. The healthy fear of God leads us to obedience, right? We don't want to run away from God. We want to be obedient to him and serve him. That's what Joseph exhibits to them. He says, I fear God, I'm gonna be the right type of man to you. They fear what God is about to bring in their life uh, because of their previous actions. And that type of fear leads us to repentance and confession. So we should respond when convicted of sin in our life so that God doesn't have to step in and discipline us to help us resolve that um, unconfessed sin. Number three, the last fear that we see is a fear that incapacitates. The word incapacitates means that we, we can't operate or we can't function properly. And that's what we see in in the life of Jacob. When the brothers make their way home and that that fear for them is continuing to build, right? Like like they leave, they they escape, they 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 could have been left in prison, but Joseph lets them out and as they journey home, they end up finding out that the money is in their bags and and they're obviously very concerned about what that means. It says um in verse 28 he said to his brothers, um my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? So they're scared to death of what God may be doing in the future. But as they come back and share that with Jacob, as we've already read, um, Jacob is, is extremely fearful over the future of Benjamin. And so it says, if we fail to properly understand God's sovereignty, we cannot function properly due to fear of the future. For our kids, God wants us to trust him so we don't have to worry about the future. Jacob has such a poor perspective in this chapter, and he he does a very poor job of demonstrating faith in God's goodness and, and God's plans in the way that he interacts with his sons. First of all, he incorrectly believes that God's against him. We've already highlighted this verse that he sees everything working against him. Joseph's been lost. Simeon's been lost. And now there's this fear that Benjamin could potentially be lost. And and he can't really operate. I don't even know that he can fully enjoy his relationship with Benjamin out of such fear of losing Benjamin, right? Like, Like I picture Benjamin, and this may be incorrect, but I picture Benjamin being locked up at home and not being allowed to do anything, right? Like his friends are like, hey, you wanna go hunting with us? No, absolutely not. Benjamin's not going anywhere. Benjamin stays with me at all times, all places. He never leaves my side. Like, I picture Benjamin just being like, God, I got to get out from underneath my dad here. Like, dad is so smothering to me. Like, I appreciate his love that he has for me, but, but, but dad won't let me do anything. That's the picture that we have here, that he's so bound up and so fearful of losing him, which is number two's point. Jacob fearfully clings to the things most precious to him to avoid losing them. He's unable to function properly. And think about what this leads him to do, right? Like they come home and say, dad, we need Benjamin. 
the, the Pharaoh's appointed man has assured us if we come back with Benjamin, Simeon will be let go. We can have access to more food. Like, like we, we have to do this, Dad. And what's Jacob's response? Look what he says. He said, uh, verse 38, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? I don't care if Simeon's in jail. He'll stay in jail. You're not taking Benjamin. I don't care if we're gonna run out of food. We're not going back to get more food. We're not taking Benjamin. Think about what he puts in front of, or what, what he basically, he, he values over everybody else in his life. I mean, one of his sons is in jail in a foreign country, and he says, you know what? We're not gonna go try to rescue him. We're just gonna leave him down there. Um, he, he's gone, basically, right? Like he says, Joseph's gone, Simeon's gone. We're not gonna lose Benjamin. He, he's so wrapped up in a gift that God has given to him, right? Like kids are a gift from God and God can take those gifts back whenever he wants, right? Like as parents, we certainly have in the back of our minds a a fear of losing our children. So we wanna make good decisions to protect them, to make sure they're watched over, to make sure that we won't make any type of silly decision that would put them in harm's way. But at the end of the day, God is sovereign over our kids, right? He's He's sovereign over every gift that he gives us. And he gives us good gifts and he can take those good gifts back whenever he wants. And we can't live incapacitated to this idea uh, of thinking that, that if we do anything uh, wrong that we might lose them, right? And so, so Jacob's so fearful uh, of doing anything that would cost him Benjamin that I don't think he can really even enjoy his relationship with his son. And it certainly impedes upon his relationships with his other family members as Simeon is abandoned and the family is put on the brink of starvation all because of Benjamin. The implication for us, a proper fear of God will protect us from the fear of everything else. A proper fear of God will protect us from the fear of everything else. So going off of the, of the, the situation right here, as a parent, we can trust, we can trust God with our children One, he gave them to us, so ultimately he owns our children, but we can trust him with our children and not live in fear because ultimately he's sovereign and in control of every aspect of their life, right? Like we talk about this, we we, we proclaim it on Sunday mornings constantly. We talk about the promises of God to work good in our life. And that's probably put to the test constantly when you have kids and you have to watch your kids leave your house. Right? And, and some of our families are experiencing that now that their kids are able to drive and it, it increases the possibility of danger. And, and we trust God the same way that we've been talking about trusting God all along. And that's where Jacob had kind of deviated from that. And he felt like, you know what? If, if Benjamin's gonna be safe, I have to make him safe, right? Like I have to protect him. I have to guard him. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an inappropriate fear, right? Like Jacob's fear here is far different than Joseph's fear of God. Right? Joseph fears God and says, it dictates how I live my life. Right? Like I'm completely subjected to him. I completely submit to him. I want to be obedient because I fear him. The brothers, their fear is appropriate too, right? Like they fear the judgment that God can bring upon them. And so it's stirring their hearts and their consciences to want to get this right. Jacob's fear is inappropriate. Jacob's fear is inappropriate because it limits him greatly in what he's able to do. Um, so, uh, Isaiah 41.10, two passages that I want to read to you and then we'll be done. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, God says, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All the verses that we've read today point to this fact that when we fear God, that we really have nothing else to fear. Um, the only thing that we're commanded to fear in God is to fear, in the Bible is to fear God, right? Like we're told to, to not fear other things, to, um, to fear God and obey him, and it causes all other fears uh, to disappear. The application for us this morning, um, the church is designed to multiply when we fear God and walk in his spirit. In Acts chapter nine, verse 31, the early church is described as a body of believers who were um, living in the fear of God. It says in verse 31, so the church 
throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I love that. I love that passage. I love um, just the picture it has there of, of a group of people who are responding to Scripture, walking in the Spirit, fearing God appropriately, um, which means that they're, they're aligning themselves with God and His will, seeking to be obedient to Him, seeking to follow Him, um, and, and it causes others to want to be a part of it, right? Like, it causes others to be a part of it because they say, you know what? Our hope is in God. Our, our fear is in God. We don't fear anything else. That's why you had the early church willing to die in the midst of persecution because the only thing they feared was God. And, and lost people saw that and lost people desired to be a part of that. Um, our family worship questions for this week. Um, so it's the application points for our kids. Um, number one, why does the Bible tell Christians to fear God? Why does the Bible tell Christians to fear God? So I hope we can use some of the things that we shared this morning to, um, to go back and reiterate to our kids. Um, you know, there's a great section in the um, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe about um, Aslan and um, you know, him being a lion and, and yet him being dangerous and, and, and yet he's good. Um, I probably experienced that a little bit when we were at the zoo a couple of years back and um, there's a, a lion exhibit there. And I mean, the lion's literally closer than me and Topi are right now, but there's a, a, gla- a piece of glass in between us. And so I can sit there and be mesmerized by the power and the strength of this lion and yet know that I'm safe um, from any danger of that lion as well. And so I want us to talk with our kids a little bit about why the Bible tells Christians to fear God. And then number two, what are some of the things that scare me the most and how is God able to remove those fears? Because when we properly fear God, it really should remove all other fears. Um, and I know for us as adults, there's probably a lot of fears about the future. You know, we've talked about fears in relationship to our kids, but when we fear God properly and we're reminded of why we fear God and, and the awesome power that God possesses, it really does remove all fears from our life because we can trust in his goodness as the Old Testament passages that we read today talked about. We find our hope and our refuge. Um, we, we see an abundance of goodness being stored up for those that properly fear God. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you and we just thank you and praise you for this chapter in scripture, a chapter that teaches us much about um, appropriate and inappropriate fear. Um, God, we thank you for the example of Joseph who demonstrates to us that if we're properly fearing you, it dictates our actions every single day. Um, God, we see that Joseph wanted to be a man of integrity, a man of justice, a man who did good to others, and that he was motivated to be that type of man because he feared you. Um, God, we want to be a a people um, like the early church of Acts that um, was motivated by your spirit, that properly feared you, and um, wants to align with you. And so, God, I pray that we would be a church that um, is, is seeking to be obedient to you. Um, and God, I pray that that fear of you would allow all other fears to dissipate in our life. Um, God, we, we don't want to be people that fear the future. We don't want to be people who, who fear current circumstances, who, who create a bunch of what-ifs. Um, God, we want to be people that are seen as finding our security and our refuge in you, and that allowing us to uh, to grip loosely the things that you've given to us. Um, God, you give good gifts, and, and we're thankful for those good gifts, but God, we never want to elevate those good gifts above you. We never want to cling so tightly to them um, that it causes us uh, distress at the thought of losing them. Um, God, I pray that you would guard us and protect us from the type of fear that Jacob demonstrates, a fear that um, really allowed him or, or kept him from being able to find joy in the midst of his life. Uh, But God, I pray that we would be uh, people that are mindful of your discipline, and that too would uh, be an appropriate fear within our life, a fear that uh, would keep us close to you, a fear that would uh, keep us uh, striving for obedience to you, realizing that sin is harmful to us and that sin is destructive to us, and that because you love us, you'll discipline us if we stray. So God, I pray that it would motivate us to stay close to you. Um, God, I pray that our kids would learn these lessons, that our kids would, uh, would see a proper fear of God that would draw them to you for salvation. Um, God, we pray for the kids in our church that have yet to um, express faith and trust in you, that we would be faithful as parents, as church members, to communicate a, a proper fear in relationship to God's wrath and his coming judgment, and that our kids would flee to you 
that they would run headstrong into you for safety. And God, I pray that as we disciple our kids and teach our kids what they're exposed to here at our church, that we'd give them a proper fear to never want to run away. As they get older and uh, as they're in school and as they go off to college potentially and start their own families, that what they learn here, that what they learn here, God, would keep them close to you for the rest of their life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.